back in 2007, I may have told you before that I had a couple of discs rupture in my back. One of them uh, pinched my spinal col uh, column completely closed. And uh, that was a very special kind of pain. It's the kind of pain that I wouldn't wish on uh, very many people. Um, you know, you always hear people say, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I'm thinking, really? You know, I mean, not, not Adolf Hitler. I mean, you know, Idi Amin, Joseph Stalin, you wouldn't wish it on them. Uh, you know. So anyway, I, I digress. I've been asked before, you know, what it was that, uh, that caused these back issues. You know, certainly it had nothing to do with my uh, svelte figure or anything like that. But, you know, was it a car crash? Uh, or something like that. No, um, it wasn't wasn't anything like that. And whatever was going on in my back was just uh, something that continued to deteriorate over uh, the time of about a, a decade or so or more. And until these ruptures occurred, the, the problem with that is that's just not a very fun story. You know, just slow deterioration over time. That's not a fun story. Parachute not opening. That's a great story. You know, um, saving children about to be uh, trampled by elephants at a circus, yeah, that's a good story, you know. Or, or maybe in a, a riding a bull, that, that would be a good story and probably more believable than the other two. But, you know, in, in fact, just to be sure, I was one time in a building with an angry bull, and I wasn't scared at all because the bull was being ridden by a professional and I was in the stands. And, you know, if I'm going to be in a room with an angry bull, I want it to be that way. I want the bull to be in the corral, and I want me to be outside of the corral. And I say all that just to, just to say that this concept of a corral, being corralled, is a very important concept today. And it's an important concept to God. And I want to show you why that's, that is so. We're studying the book of Romans, and there's a certain verse in the book of Romans that summarizes the whole thing. And it's Romans 11.32. Now, we're not all the way in Romans 11 yet. We're still in chapter 1. But Romans 11.32 says this. It says, For God has shut up all in disobedience. He has corralled all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. God has corralled us in disobedience so that he might show us his mercy. He keeps us in the pen like a wild bull so that he can show mercy to us. And I'll explain how this works in just, just a minute, at least a little bit of what God is doing in this in just a minute. But just for now, I want you to keep this idea of corralling in your mind. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. In Romans chapter 1, uh, this is where we'll uh, begin our examination of what God is doing in His wrath. And this sermon is called, in fact, The Wrath of God. And it's part of our series, Romans, Mercy to All. And by the way, I get that phrase, mercy to all, from Romans 11.32. Where again it says God has shut us up all he has, he has shut us up in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. 
So if you found Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 30, or 18 through 23, I should say, would you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word? I'll be reading aloud from the New American Standard Bible in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. We read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us insight into what the Apostle Paul wrote so many years ago so that we can understand your nature better and how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in Romans chapter 1, we learned uh, last week from the previous verses a little bit about the gospel. We know what the gospel is. The gospel, the word gospel means good news, and it's the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of God. And the second thing that we learned, and look at verse 17. It says, for in it, meaning the gospel, for in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the good news of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, the good news about Jesus, it tells us something about God, that God is righteous, that he is just, that he is holy, he is without sin. So here's the question. How can a righteous God accept an unrighteous person like me? Well, I don't become righteous through keeping the sacraments or being religious or helping little old ladies across the street or doing more good than I did bad or anything like that or somehow else trying to be good enough for God, but rather God declares me to be righteous if I have faith in Jesus. Verse 17 says, at the end, the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. And so God reveals his righteousness to us. And, and so now we're going to learn something else that's revealed. By the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ tells us that God is righteous. It tells us that we are declared righteous by God by having faith in Jesus. But there's something else that the good news of Jesus Christ reveals to us, and it is the wrath of God. Verse 18 again. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
Let's talk about the wrath of God for a minute. And I know you're thinking, oh, goody. There's things going on in my life. I came to church so the preacher might be able to encourage me a little bit. And he's going to spend the whole sermon talking about the wrath of God. Well, it's true. But it's not that bad, okay? Because uh, I want you to understand the wrath of God because when you do, I think you'll understand the nature of God and, and also the mercy of God. Okay, so verse 18, let's look at this carefully. It first says that God's wrath is revealed to us. It's no longer hidden from us. We know about it. And so God makes it no secret that he dislikes sin a lot. I mean, a lot. More than, more than you could ever imagine. God dislikes sin. Second thing I want you to notice, and this is very important. Notice where God's wrath is focused. God does not reveal His wrath against us. Verse 18 does not say that. It says that God's wrath is revealed against our ungodliness and unrighteousness. You might say, what's the difference? Here's the difference. If you do something wrong, you might feel guilty about it. And you might begin to feel so guilty that you come to this conclusion. You might say, God hates me. But that's not true. That's not true. God loves you. What God hates is your sin. God's wrath is revealed against your sin, against your ungodliness, not against you. You see, if God's wrath was revealed against you personally, then you would have to bear the penalty of it. But since God's wrath is not against you, but it is against your sin, then maybe, maybe someone else could pay the penalty for your sin. You might say, well, who would pay the penalty for my sin? I mean, it's no one's fault but my own. Who would love me enough to pay my penalty for my sin? Would you believe me if I told you that God loves you so much that He Himself would pay the penalty for your sin? Well, you might say, well, how could God do that? Isn't the penalty for my sin death? How could God die in my place? Well, the only way that God could pay for your sin is if he became a human. And that's exactly who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. And he did pay the penalty for your sin. You see, you don't have to pay the penalty for your own sins. Have faith in Jesus. He's already paid your debt. It's that simple. Now let's learn just a little bit more about the wrath of God. Because the more you understand about God's wrath, the more you will understand how God works. How God works in you, how God works in the lost, how God works in the people that, that uh, you love and care for. The people in your world. What is the wrath of God? I'll, I'll ex let me explain what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is not a lightning bolt from heaven just ready to zap you. Blah! You know, and, and, you're, and you're just toast. That's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is God saying to you, okay, have it your way. 
Live life your way. And let's see how this turns out. I want you to discover for yourself how living life your way goes. And then initially you think, wonderful, finally. God's going to get off my back. And I'm going to do my own thing. And I'm going to live my, my life my way. By the way, God does this with nations. God does this with, with societies too. And you can sense, I think, the growing level of dysfunction in our own society as people live their own way instead of God's way. God is allowing them to understand and to feel the effect of living without Him. So how exactly does the wrath of God work? And this is, a, this is a great question. Here's what happens. When you live life your way, when you've rejected God's way, and you decide to live life your way, the wrath of God is at work in you, and it's slowly revealing death to you. It's revealing that the end game of the way you're going will not end well. That you will eventually die. So in other words, when God allows a person to live his or her own way, his wrath drives them closer to death. And people sense it too. You hear people who are totally wrapped up in themselves, who are hooked on something other than God, and they say things. They, they actually verbalize the spiritual reality that's going on without even knowing it. They say things like, I wish I was dead. They say things like, this is killing me. I can't stand this anymore. I could just die. People living their own way, they become more and more miserable. And it's the exact opposite of what you would think. I want to be happy. People think, I'm going to live life my way. Because if I live my life my way, then I will be happy. But it's just the opposite. If you live your life your way, only looking out for yourself, only doing what you indeed want to do for you, the end result is you become more and more miserable. Nothing will bring them satisfaction or lasting joy. And it doesn't matter what captures their heart. They, their heart might be captured by greed. How much money is enough? Rockefeller said, just a little bit more. This is a man who in our day was worth over $660 billion. And just a little bit more was enough to make him happy. People might be captured by greed or by lust or be caught up into drugs or be caught up into power and pride. It doesn't matter what the sin is that captures their heart. It's never enough. And they go deeper and deeper. They spiral down to a point where they just want to die. People feel like they're stuck in an unfulfilling life that ends in death. I mean, it's, it's almost like they feel stuck, like they feel corralled in their sin, which is exactly the way God designed it. God corrals people up. He shuts them up in their sin. That is the wrath of God. Why would God do that to people? Again, good question. 
God's wrath drives people ever closer to death in order to make them repent and turn to Jesus and have faith in Him so that they might cry out to God for mercy and He will shower them with mercy and change their life and change their eternity. You see, God's wrath is not in conflict with God's love. It drives me crazy when preachers say that. God's wrath is not in conflict with God's love. The wrath of God works to drive people to experience His love. God corrals people up in their sin to help them turn to Jesus. So why are we so messed up? I mean, why do we sin? What is the source of the ungodliness within me? Here it is. We've rejected the created order of things that God set in place from the very beginning. God has a set way of doing things. And we've rejected it and turned it completely upside down. We have a tendency to overturn God's intended order of things. I'll show you. We'll go back to the very beginning. In Genesis 1.27, you don't have to turn there, you can if you like. In Genesis 1.27, we learn that God created humans to be male and female. Pretty simple. Used to be, at least. God created humans to be male and to be female. It's basic to hu humanity that you are one or the other. When you were born, the nurse, your mom, somebody, the doctor said, it's a boy or it's a girl. They didn't say, we're not sure. We're confused. And nobody in the history of mankind has ever said, it's a human. You would think it would be. Surely. We wouldn't mess this up, would we? I mean, surely there wouldn't come a time where grown men didn't know that they were men and grown women didn't know that they were women. We wouldn't mess that up. Well, apparently so. We flipped the order, the intended order of things. In the very next verse in Genesis 1.28, God says to the male and the female, to Adam and Eve, to the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply. Again, multiplication among humans, reproduction requires, I'm going to call it cooperation, between a man and a woman. For the children in the room, we'll call it cooperation. Okay? Very basic, from the beginning of mankind, two males do not produce humans. Neither do two females. There is an intended order of things that God has set from the very beginning. It's just how things are. No amount of arguing, no amount of rebellion, no laws passed by Congress or decisions made by the Supreme Court will ever change this. God has set it from the beginning. In that same verse, in Genesis 1.28, God tells humans to rule over creation. As the, as the bearers of His image, you and I, we, we bear the image of God. We are made in the image of God. This means that we are to reign as God's representatives on earth over the entire world and everything in it. 
We are not to abuse God's world. It belongs to Him. We are not to abuse God's creatures. It belongs to Him. But we are to use them for the benefit of humanity and the glory of God. And certainly, we are not to worship this world. It is creation. We are not to worship creatures. They are created. We are to worship the Creator. But like the other things that God has set in order from day one, we've upended this, and, and we'll see this in just a minute. Romans 1.18 again. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know what it means to suppress something. It means you don't like it, so you don't talk about it. It means... You just pretend it doesn't exist. You pretend that the reality is not really reality. And so people today pretend that the reality is somehow wrong. Why do people do this? Verse 19 tells us why. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. You see, Paul is saying that every person instinctively and inherently knows that God exists. They know things about God instinctively. Atheism is not natural. It is not natural. People have to be convinced to be an atheist. You take a young child, and I'm not suggesting you do this, but, you, but just for the point of it, if you were to take a young child and tell him that everything, that exists came from nothing. He's going to say, oh, how did it get here? And it's not just because kids are inquisitive. Atheism just doesn't sit right with people. And the reason it doesn't sit right with people is because they instinctively know that it's wrong. Atheists uh, accuse us, Christians, of believing in fairy tales. They want us to believe that nothing created everything from nothing. Now, that's a fairy tale. That makes no sense at all. Let's take it a step further. You take that young child, and you tell him that his ancestors were monkeys and fish. You tell him that his life is worth $4.50, which is the actual cost of the chemical composition of a grown human if you were to sell these chemicals on the street, you tell that child that when he dies, he'll be eaten by worms, I'll tell you something, that child will need psychological help. Why live a moral life? Why be nice to people? If atheism is true, man, hey, I'm just going to get as much as I can as quickly as I can. It's all about me. However, if you were to take a young child and tell him one simple fact that he instinctively and inherently knows that's already true. That God created everything that exists. That child will immediately know some things about God. God is big, isn't he? God is old. God is good. God loves me. 
I love God too. It's the way we've been made by God. That's what Paul is saying in verse 19. That which is known about God is evident within them because God made it evident to them. He takes it further in verse 20. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. You see, the issue for people that are under the wrath of God is not that they just didn't know that a God exists. That's not it at all. Verse 20 makes it clear that unless they suppress their internal knowledge of God, everyone knows that God has eternal power. Everyone knows that God is God. Creation itself points to a creator. Verse 21 continues. Paul says, and even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Listen, the, pe- the reason people suffered the, what I'm going to call the slow burn of God's wrath, living life my way and feeling all the re- results, the effects of that. The reason people suffer that slow burn of God's wrath is because they do not respond to God correctly. God has revealed himself to all people internally. God has revealed himself to all people through creation. And that means that all people face a choice. If I know there's a God, And I know these things that even a child would be able to say about God. That God is good. He's old. He's big. He loves me. How did I respond? Did I honor God? Did I give thanks to God? If the answer to that question is yes, then I said, thank you, God, for creating me. Please show yourself to me. God will do it. He will show himself to that person that honors and thanks him. The good news about Jesus will be the power of God that saves that person. But if the answer to those questions is no, I did not honor God, I do not thank God for creating me, then they become futile in their speculations and their foolish heart is darkened. You see, people who don't know Christ, and again, they don't know Christ because they refuse to respond to the revelation that of God that they have, they speculate all kinds of crazy things about God. Things that are not true. Now, I'm not picking on her, and if I did, she wouldn't care. But Oprah Winfrey is a prime example. Oprah claims to be a Christian, but her beliefs are not biblical. Instead, her futile speculations about spiritual, eternal, uh, eternal things, invisible things, things about God, these futile speculations have become her gospel. For example, she believes in monism. Monism means that we are all one. Isn't that nice? We are all one. No, we're not. We're not one. I am not you. You are not me. This is not hard. We are not all one. She believes in pantheism, that God is in all things. God is in the carpet. No, He's not. Do not confuse the creation or any part of it with the Creator. Pantheism is not biblical. She believes in universalism. Many times over, she said that there are many paths to God. Not according to the one who died on the cross. 
not according to the one who came from the Father to show us the way to the Father. He said that he is the only way to the Father. Now, those beliefs that Oprah spouts might be very popular beliefs, but they're not Christian beliefs. They're not biblical beliefs. Al Mohler said it best. He said, Oprah's newly packaged positive thinking spirituality is tailor-made for the empty souls of our postmodern age. She promises meaning without truth, acceptance without judgment, and fulfillment without self-denial. Again, it's not about Oprah. It's just an example. It's about people who reject the truth about God, and instead they become futile in their own speculations, and their foolish heart is darkened. The next two verses we read, professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You see, when you reject the internal knowledge of God that you already have, you reject that. If you do that, what happens is it begins to corrupt your mind. You begin to speculate about things you think you know that you really don't. And your spiritual heart, which is designed to be a light within you that reflects the glory of God and the glory of Christ, that light begins to fade. It grows dark spiritually. And once this happens, you become wise in your own eyes. You become a legend in your own mind. You become sure of things that you don't have a clue about. And something else happens too. You see, inside every person is what's been called sometimes a God-shaped vacuum. An emptiness that God created to draw us to himself. But once God is not honored and thanked, once the gospel is rejected, that God-shaped vacuum remains empty. And people who reject God find other things to worship in His place. They exchange the worship of God for created things. You know, in ancient days, people would make literal idols. They would make statues that looked like men women or birds or half men half bulls or or whatever angelic things they'd make these statues these idols they would ascribe magical powers to these and they would believe that there's some spiritual deity behind the statue but we don't do that today right i mean we don't do that today we don't worship celebrities we don't treat celebrities as if they have magical powers do we you know we we don't worship materialism, treating things that we purchase as if it can fulfill us. We don't do that, do we? We don't worship technology, letting it control our lives. That picture's great. You know who they're texting. One another. I'm pretty sure that, yeah, that idol worship problem, that was for a bunch of boneheads that lived 2,000 years ago, right? Because we're so much better than that today, right? Maybe not. Maybe not. Listen, if you're a follower of Christ like me, we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trappings of the false worship that this world offers. False gods are no substitute for worship and devotion to the living God, the true God, 
But the real danger for someone listening to the sermon today is if you've rejected God. Let me ask you a few questions. And I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of internal surgery on yourself, okay? Just listen to these questions and answer them for yourself. First of all, do you feel like there's something in your life that's slowly killing you? Like something in your life is just, it's just taking the joy out of life. And it's just a constant source of misery and heartache. Something that you're devoted to. That's important to you. That maybe you would honestly say you've put in the place of God. Have you spent time honoring God as your creator and thanking him for creating you? I'm talking to lost people here, not just saved people. I'm talking to people who don't know the Lord. But you know in your heart that there's a God. Have you honored God? Have you said, thank you, God, for creating me? That can go a long way if you do, but if you haven't done that, you have by default rejected the knowledge of God within you. Because if you know that there's a God who's good and big and old and loves you, and you say nothing to him in response for creating you, that's rejection. That's rejection. Another question. Are your thoughts about spiritual and eternal things anything more than speculation on your part? Do you just think a certain way about God just because it sounds good to you? I mean, you fall in the trap, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere. Is that the basis of your eternity? You're going to base your eternity on that? Are you sure? Sounds good? Maybe? What if you're wrong? Do you feel, another question, do you feel like your spiritual heart is darkening? That the spiritual life within you is just going down a spiral, going downhill? Let me ask you another question. What is it you worship? You worship whatever is most important to you. Is it money? Is it stuff? Possessions? Is it science? Is it celebrities? Fame? Whatever's trending on Twitter? Listen, what I'm asking you to do today in response to God is to put all of that aside, to realize that everything except God, is unworthy of your full devotion. God alone should take top priority in your heart. And you should come to the place where you understand that He loves you so much that He wants to save you from that end game. The end game does happen. The wages of sin is death. But it's not always immediate death. It's usually a slow death. But the day's coming for every one of us when time will run out in this life. By then, you need to have made a choice. 
And I wish I could promise you that you've got another 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40, 50 years. I wish I could promise you that you could put this decision off till later and be okay, but I can't promise you that. I don't know what this day holds. I do not know, and neither do you. God knows. Jesus told the story of the man who was wealthy and had made plans to build bigger barns to hold more of his uh, storehouses of food. And the Lord said to him, You fool, don't you know that tonight your soul is required of you? There's more to life than what this world says. God says, worship me. Worship me alone. Jesus says, I died on the cross for you. I paid the debt. All you have to do is have faith in me. By having faith in him, you're not trusting anything else to save you. But Jesus alone. 